Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we're going to be continuing our way through Daniel chapter 2. And just by way of reminder, last week we read about Nebuchadnezzar's decree to have all of the wise men put to death because they could not tell him his dream or give the interpretation. And Colleen, you (laughs) thought as an Adventist that the king had forgotten his dream and we weren't sure if that came from Adventism and you got some fact checking done this week, didn't you? (laughs) What did you find? Well, I discovered that Ellen had things to say. And now I know why I believed that the king forgot the dream. She said he did. (laughs) So I have a couple of references here, and I'm just going to read part of them. The first one is from the book called The Sanctified Life on page 34. And this is what she says. The king knew that if they could really tell the interpretation, they could tell the dream as well. The Lord had in his providence given Nebuchadnezzar this dream and had caused the particulars to be forgotten while the fearful impression was left upon his mind in order to expose the pretensions of the wise men of Babylon. She's saying here that God caused him to forget the dream so that the false soothsayers of Babylon would be exposed as false. But that's not what the text says. Now, here's a quote from the Review and Herald, November 10, 1904. And I'm always curious when I read one of her quotes from 1904, 1905, because this is late Ellen. You know, a lot of Adventists say Ellen changed over the years, and she became more Trinitarian and more gospel-centered and just really became a true Christian writer. But I want to say, She died in 1915. So when I read something written in 1904, this is late Ellen. I want to say, no, she didn't really change. She maybe copied different things and so forth, but she really didn't, bottom line, change her understanding of Scripture. So this is from the Review and Herald, November 10, 1904. She says, The habits and understanding of the youth who were not instructed by God— this is referring to the people in Babylon who'd been taken, were in accord with the knowledge that comes from idolatrous practices and leaves God out of the reckoning. Daniel and his companions, from the first of their experience in the king's court, were gaining a clearer comprehension and sounder, more accurate judgment than all the wise men in the kingdom of Babylon. They placed themselves where God could bless them. Now, right away, is there a problem with that? They ate only that food which would not be cloud their minds. They followed rules of life which would help to give them strength of intellect, that they might gain the greatest possible benefit from their study of God's word. It was to Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, unable to get help from his wise men, turned for an account of his forgotten dream and for an interpretation of it. There's a number of things in this that Ellen says, probably the least horrific of which is that it was a forgotten dream, because I suspect that many people suspect the dream might have been forgotten because the Bible doesn't explicitly say whether it was forgotten or not. Now, when I read it, Nikki, we were talking about it. It looks to us in the text as though he clearly did remember it. Yeah. And he didn't want to trust anybody who would assume to tell him what the dream meant if they couldn't also tell him the dream because he didn't trust his wise men. 
Yeah, he said he knew that they were conspiring together to lie to him. So how can it be a test if he doesn't have the answer? Exactly. It it doesn't make sense to me that it would be forgotten. I agree. But she not only says that he had a forgotten dream, she reiterates in this passage that the food they ate would not be cloud their minds and their lifestyle would give them strength of intellect that they might gain the greatest possible benefit from their study of God's Word. All of that is just random philosophizing on her part from her worldview. There's nothing in the book of Daniel to indicate that Daniel ate a certain way in order to not be cloud his mind. This whole worldview, this whole perspective on how humans are to interact to gain a blessing, it's a manipulation of God. Yes. We can't manipulate God. There's nothing we can do to earn his favor, to earn his blessing, That's right. to earn anything from him, because God owes us nothing. Anything we're given from God is by grace, and it's by his sovereign will. And for his glory. Yes. His glory. So when she leads this little passage by saying, they placed themselves where God could bless them, right there, we've stepped off the path of biblical reality. You know what, Nikki? I am more and more overwhelmed with the darkness of what we came out of. Mm -hmm. And when I read this book, which actually contains the core verse in chapter 8 of the core doctrine of the Adventist religion, and I'm going to call it that instead of a denomination, it is shocking to me how insightful this book is, how it reveals a sovereign God, how it reveals our ability to know Him because He reveals Himself, and to realize that because of Ellen White, this book was hidden to us. It was frightening. People are afraid to read it after they leave Adventism. No, this book is an amazing book, and it corrects all of this weird worldview stuff that we grew up with. Yeah, and it's in these places, these seemingly small stories all throughout the scriptures that we truly learn God's character. It's not just outlined in a a list of 10 rules. That is right. Which, of course, reminds me of one more thing we were talking about while we were preparing for this podcast. You know, we talked in the past about the fact that God took Daniel and his friends, and in fact, all of the Jews who were exiled from Judah, were taken to Babylon where they didn't have the temple, and they didn't have their worship, and they didn't Mm -hmm. have their sacrifices, and they didn't have their priesthood. But you know, Nikki, what's really interesting to me about this is that they are still in the middle of the Mosaic Covenant. Mm -hmm. God gave that covenant at Sinai for the Jews. Jesus has not yet come and fulfilled the law. They're still in the middle of that covenant, but God himself took them where they could not practice the law. They could not practice the law of sacrifices, the law of rituals, the law of Sabbaths. They could not practice those things. They were in a pagan country, enslaved. And yet, Daniel and his friends were able to be faithful to God because they trusted God. Even in this, God reveals that the real issue is how we deal with Him and his dealing with us. And if there is anything that says that law was not eternal, it's this book of Daniel. Yeah. God is not under the Mosaic Covenant. He is not under the law. This clearly shows that he is over. He's the Lord of the law. Yes. And that's why when Christ came, it's clear in Scripture that he was born of a woman under the law. He wasn't under the law before that. No. He wasn't. That's a really good point. And for God to deliberately lead his children out of Judah, and you might say, well, yes, but he was punishing them. 
they had disobeyed him, so they were getting punished. Yes, but that didn't stop the terms of the covenant. And let's think about that for a minute. Because if it's a sin to break the law, the Mosaic covenant, then to say, well, he was punishing them is to imply that you can sin against your kids for punishment. Oh my goodness, that's a great point. No, God is not sinning by taking them out of the place where they can keep the law. And Israel was not sinning by leaving the temple and by leaving their system of worship. They were actually going where God took them, whether they wanted to or not, but they were. God took them where they could not keep the terms of the law. But He didn't stop being their God, and they didn't stop being His people, even in exile. If we want to think about it, here's some even more insight from Jeremiah, who wrote at the beginning and just before the exile. Jeremiah was alive during the exile of Judah. And Jeremiah wrote this in, first of all, there's a passage from Jeremiah 21, verses 8 and 9. And to this people you shall say, and this is God speaking to Jeremiah, giving him his words for the nation. Thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city, and the context is that's Jerusalem, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, who are besieging you, shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. Now, think about it. This is God saying, if anybody tries to stay here in the city I established, in the country I gave you, you'll die. If you go where I'm leading you, in the exile of the Babylonians, you will live. And then he goes on in Jeremiah 29, 4 to 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then in verses 10 and 11, We're going to bump into one of those texts that's everybody's favorite text, but here's the context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's amazing. That's, that is (laughs) that's a really important context for that passage, isn't it? It is. We use that a lot at graduations. (laughs) (laughs) But God had a good purpose in taking them away from the place where they could ultimately fulfill their obligation to the covenant. That's right. This is where the sacrifices were given. This is where the priests were. This was their house of faith. And God took them from it. And he he told them to go and to make a life for themselves. 70 years. I mean, that's a generation of people who were unable to go to the temple and keep the law. Now, I know Adventists like to separate the ritual laws from the moral laws, and certainly God isn't preventing them from keeping 
the moral laws of the Decalogue. But the point is, is that he's removing them from a place where they can keep the terms of the covenant, That's which right. is not divided. And that includes the Sabbath. You can bet that those Jews were not able to keep the Sabbath in the way that God had told them to keep it in Israel, staying in their tents, not going out. Um, there were certain sacrifices the priests had to offer on Sabbath. None of that was possible in Babylon. God himself took them out of where they could keep the law. And yet, he didn't remove the possibility of their trusting him and worshiping him. And then he said he'd bring them back. But isn't it also fascinating that he said, you're supposed to go there, you're supposed to make a home, you're supposed to pray for the success of that city. Do not decrease. They had one option. Either, well, two, I guess. Either believe God and keep your life and go where he says to go, or don't believe him and you die. That's what the clear choice was here. That's our choice today, too. Yeah, it is. One other thing about this that's so interesting is that one of the things that our Pastor Gary said in, in his Daniel talks at the FAF conference in 2016 was that because of this exile into Babylon, it established the largest population of Jews east of the Holy Land. And it's interesting because during the intertestamental period, there were rabbinic collections of writings on the law that were collected and developed. And I'd always wondered, never understood the background of the fact that there are two sets of what they call midrashes, and they call them the Talmuds. They had the Palestinian Talmud, and there is the Babylonian Talmud. Wow. And both of these Talmuds are collections of rabbinical writings, and one was from the rabbis who were in Israel, and one was from the rabbis who were in Babylon. Isn't that fascinating? That's neat. I wonder if those were used to bring those wise men into to Bethlehem when they saw the star. You know, I am certain that the wise men understanding any of this was a consequence of Judah being taken into Babylon, and Daniel writing, and Jeremiah writing, and Ezekiel writing, all of these people who overlapped with the exile. <laughs> Well, why don't we look at our passage for today? We are going to talk about Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which I don't believe was forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and we're reading today from Daniel 2, 24 to 49. Nikki, would you do that for us, please? Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king 
and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay." As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. That was a feat, Nikki, to read that whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) But what an amazing story. Last week we learned that Daniel had begged for time because the executioner, Arioch, had been sent to kill him and the three friends. And Daniel begged for time. He and his three friends prayed, and God revealed this. And now we hear what Daniel said to the king after God revealed this dream. In verse 26, the king said to Daniel, Can you tell me the interpretation of this dream? And what was Daniel's response? 
Well, he told them that nobody could and that he couldn't from his own self, that he didn't have the wisdom for this. But for God's purposes, he was able to answer him and to tell him what he dreamed and what the dream meant. And I just want to say again, if we go back to Daniel chapter two, verses seven to nine, we can see that it wasn't that he forgot his dream. And even here in this verse, it says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen mm-hmm. and its interpretation? And he had made clear earlier in the chapter when he spoke to all of these false soothsayers that he knew that they were plotting to lie to him. And his yeah. command was firm. Unless they could tell him what he dreamed, he wasn't going to let him tell him what it meant. Yeah. It was a test. So Daniel confirmed to the king what he had already been aware of. That these guys couldn't tell him. And even Daniel himself as a human couldn't tell him, but God gave him the answer. You know, two things strike me about this. The first is obviously that Daniel had a different response than the soothsayers. Daniel didn't take credit for being able to understand this dream. He didn't try to present himself as having superior power. He gave all the credit to God. But the second thing is, Nikki, this is really remarkable because... This is a pagan king who has a world empire that's conquering everything in its path and taking captive the people it's conquering. And God meets this king in his dream and tells him something about the future of the world that's here in God's eternal word. How remarkable is that? It's amazing. And it's also interesting that all he asked of Daniel was what he dreamed, and what it meant. But Daniel came in and he went a step further and he told the king that even before he had fallen asleep, his thoughts had turned toward wondering what would happen in the future. He also gave the king the context (laughs) of how he entered into this place of dreaming. And only Nebuchadnezzar and God alone knew that that was true. So so he, he begins this whole thing with giving all of the credit to God And it's interesting, too, because those soothsayers said only the gods can do this. Yeah. Well, Daniel did, too. He said only God can do this, but he knows God. (laughs) He knows the only God who can. It's so wise of him, too, as he's speaking to the king in verse 28. He says, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. He didn't say he told me. No. He said he told you, king. Yeah. What will take place in the latter days? And I think those words, latter days, are important to think about as we walk through this because we're living in these latter days as the church. That's right. And God told King Nebuchadnezzar what was going to take place in these latter days. You know, I'd never thought of that significance of that before, that God revealed the future, which the whole world is supposed to know to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel acknowledged that. And it was the the head of gold. It was the king of Babel. Yeah, (laughs) right. That he gave this to. He told him about this time of Gentiles. And I wanted to, because I was thinking about that, the latter days, I wanted to look at some New Testament references to the, Mm -hmm. the last days. And we get a lot of that in Hebrews. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Mm -hmm. Peter says that when the Holy Spirit came to the church, it fulfilled a prophecy of what would happen in the last days. 
And we read in Acts that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. There are several verses Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. Those are just a few of them. And so as we get to walk through and see what's going on with this statue and what this rock is all about, this last days having something to do with the church and with Christ was exciting. Yeah, to me, it is amazing, and that God revealed all of this to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel says that God revealed this mystery to him, Daniel, so that the king would understand the thoughts of his own head. Which means they were there; they, they were weren't there. forgotten, <laughs> right? And it means that God gave the king the thoughts those particular thoughts. Mm-hmm. And he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know this was from God. You didn't just have a random dream. This wasn't something from the gods. This is all from God, whom the Jews knew, whom Daniel knew. And he'd given these thoughts to the king. I just find this amazing. You know, we often think, and Adventism taught us, that God reveals himself, like Ellen White said, they kept themselves in a place where God could bless them. Well, how was Nebuchadnezzar keeping himself in a place where God could bless him? He wasn't. Oh, that's a good point. He was a marauding, conquering, pagan king, and God gave him a dream that foretold the entire future of the world. And it was for everybody to know, because God, through Daniel, recorded it in his eternal word. And not to beat a dead horse, but Daniel made clear that it, the purpose was for him to make known the interpretation to the king, That's not right. the details of the dream. So then, in the next set of verses, we read about the king's dream itself. So let's just walk through the outline of it. He sees this huge colossus and... It's divided into four kinds of metal from the head down to the feet. And the feet, of course, have metal plus clay. So, Nikki, talk about the head of gold a bit. What does Daniel tell the king about the head of gold on this image? So, he tells him that he, the head of gold represents him. Nebuchadnezzar, which I'm sure made him happy. I'm sure. (laughs) He said that the God of heaven is the one who gave him the kingdom who gave him his power, who gave him his strength, who gave him his glory. All of this came from the hand of God. And not only that, but he said, wherever humans dwell, wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the air, he's given them into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. All of it came from God. He was the emperor of a true worldwide empire. Mm -hmm. The head of gold apparently represented great wealth, the most valuable, the most wealthy, the most elaborate, the most beautiful of the kingdoms. It's interesting. One of the things that um, I picked up from listening to an S. Lewis Johnson sermon on this particular chapter, I had never thought of this before, but he says that the head of the statue essentially identified the nature and the personality of the whole statue that was represented there. And he went on to say, Babylon was the first and the last world power that was named in the Bible. Babylon gets its name from Babel, the Tower of Babel built on the plain of Shinar, exactly where Nebuchadnezzar's capital was. (laughs) Babel in Genesis 10 is the first intimation of this, this worldwide spiritual and economic power that we see throughout the Bible. We see the manifestation of the 
empire of Babylon right here. And then in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see Babylon being the final city to fall, the one which will cause everybody to weep when it falls. It will be the religious center. It will be the economic center. The merchants of the world will weep when Babylon falls. So Babylon is the power that spans the entire course of human history from the flood onward until the very end. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of this statue, and that head is the thing that gives the basic identity of the nature of these kingdoms. That's fascinating, and especially when you think about the contrast where you have this image, and he's the head, and he is the identity of all of these kingdoms, and you have the body of Christ, and Christ is the head, and it's this spiritual, organic, real thing that is directed by God himself. Yeah. Even these evil pagan empires are directed by God. As we read in Daniel's prayer in the first part of Daniel 2, where he says about God, you, God, change times and epochs. And here we see this dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar showing that God himself is foretelling the empires of the world, which will last from the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the very end of time when Jesus returns. These are the empires of the world. So then we come to the next part of the image below the golden head. And what do we have? So he says, after that, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now, we don't learn all the details about this here, but as we go on through this book and Daniel himself starts receiving visions of those beasts, which kind of strike terror into the hearts of a lot of us who've been Adventist, because, you know, those beasts always figure prominently in the Revelation seminars. The paper mache ones. (laughs) (laughs) At Andrews University, the original paper mache beasts are on display in the Heritage Library. They are fearsome and disgusting. (laughs) But anyway, we're going to learn more about these kingdoms as we move through the book. But we know from history that the empire that followed Babylon was Medo-Persia, and we are actually going to meet the kings of the Medes and the Persians who will succeed Nebuchadnezzar. And while Daniel is still alive, we will meet the king who conquers Babylon and ultimately precedes Daniel's being thrown into the lion's den. So it was in this kingdom of Medo-Persia that we get the story of Esther, is that right? Esther is in the kingdom of Persia, yes. So there's that overlap. So later in the book, when Daniel is praying to God instead of worshiping the king, he will be in Susa, and that is where Mordecai and Esther were located, in Susa. And that was a Persian city, and that was a Persian, part of the Persian kingdom. So, yes, there's overlap there. Did they live there around the same time, or are there a significant number of years between them? You know, I think there might have been some years, but I would have to know and go back and study the history and see who the kings were to figure it out. I don't believe there was any personal overlap, but we do know that Esther was in the kingdom of Persia, and the kingdom of Medo-Persia immediately succeeded Babylon. The medals are interesting because the medals reveal the wealth and the glory of the nations in decreasing centralized power. And I think that's a really interesting point. Babylon was a true empire with a autocratic monarch. 
And as the empires succeeded each other, they became less centralized. They became, in fact, Greece and Rome specialized in a sort of democracy. Rome is known for its Senate and its senators. So there was nothing like that going on in Babylon. So the metals seem to reveal wealth, glory, and centralized power. And as the metals decrease in wealth in this statue, we can see that the actual form of government is in a decreasing glory, a decreasing centralized power. However, the metals also reveal an increasing military strength. So we go from Gold, which is extremely valuable, but is rather malleable. It's not a terribly strong metal. We end with iron, which is extremely strong and unbreakable. So we move from an absolute autocratic emperor in Babylon, and ultimately in this image, we will end up with a very strong military presence, but with a less centralized government. That's interesting. So then after we see the chest and arms of silver, which is Medo-Persia, and we know that from history, even from the book of Daniel, we come to the part of the statue that is bronze. What kingdom will that be? That's Greece. Okay. And we're going to learn more about that as we go on through the book, and we learn more about the characteristics and what will happen as Daniel has his visions. And then we come to the longest lasting one, partially symbolized by those long legs of the statue. What is that final metal and what kingdom does it represent? That is the iron. The legs were iron. And my Bible says it represents Rome. That's true. Rome conquered Greece and overtook it. Now, Rome is going to actually end up being the longest lived of these empires and the most extensive. We know from history that Rome actually ended up stretching from the British Isles to Egypt to Iraq. It was huge. It was a world empire that covered most of what we now understand to be Western civilization. In fact, Western civilization largely derives from the values and government and features of Rome. This is where I am not a history buff that this whole thing sort of became confusing to me. And it was interesting for me to learn, and I don't have a lot of details to explain this, but I will share what I found. The two legs actually represent the fact that Rome became a divided kingdom. Now, right at first, and when Jesus was on earth, it was a single empire with a single emperor. But in 286 AD, there was an emperor named Diocletian, And he decided to divide Rome because it had become so big it was unwieldy to govern from a single centralized place. So Rome essentially was divided into two main sections, an eastern part and a western part. And now I'm greatly doing shorthand here. Any of you who are history buffs will know that I'm probably leaving out a ton of detail. But as a shorthand thing, we can know that ultimately the western part of Rome became ruled by a throne in Rome, actually Rome, in Europe, in Italy. The eastern part of Rome had a capital at a city called Constantinople, which today is called Istanbul. So it was in Turkey. These two sections of the kingdom always considered themselves Rome. They always considered themselves to be the inheritors of the legacy of Rome. But ultimately, they ended up leaving two very different legacies in the world. Now, the Western Empire of Rome 
suffered many invasions by barbarian tribes, and in the year 476 AD, it was finally sacked and destroyed by barbarians. Some will even say that the eastern part thrived and flourished until about the year 1453, when the Ottoman Empire overtook it. Now, don't glaze over with all of these details. The essential thing that is significant about these two legs of the statue is this. Western Rome developed a culture that has become defined in the ways we think of Western culture today. And even the religion was different from the religion of the East. The religion of Western Rome became known as the Catholic religion. The religion of Eastern Rome became known as Eastern Orthodox. So they are related religions, but not exactly the same. And these two different cultures divided geographically into East and West, developed different cultures, different foods, different methods of living their lives. And even today in Europe, in the nations that have a largely Eastern Orthodox tradition, you can see that there are differences even today in food, in the way people live, in the way they think from the parts of the world that were influenced by Western Rome. So even today, those differences are there. And we live in Western civilization with the remains of what Rome left us. So Colleen, as a former Adventist who now lives by really strict rules when I read the Bible, (laughs) Uh I had to spend a minute when we were going through this, letting myself kind of chill about the headings of these sections, because the headings are not inspired headings. Right. It's how those who put these various versions of the Bible together decided to head these sections. And so when I saw in the headings that they listed which kingdoms these represented, they listed Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and anything post-Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel didn't know about yet. Right. He only knew what the vision told him. So he didn't have the names of these great kingdoms. So, these headings are a retrospective interpretation, right? Right. And the way we know that these headings are accurate is because if we look at history, these are recorded battles. Mm -hmm. I mean, right here in the book of Daniel, we see the night when the Medo-Persian Empire conquers Babylon. And that's when the handwriting on the wall shows up. (laughs) And that's a story we all knew. But that was when we moved from the head of gold to the chest of silver, And then the future visions will give us even more that let us know when these things happen. And if you look back in history, the dates are there, the names of the rulers are there, and it's traceable. It's very accurate. And I know that there are critics who say it's too accurate. Daniel Mm -hmm. couldn't have possibly written this. Yeah. And yet we know that he did, that we have old manuscripts of this. This was God letting a pagan king know what was coming in the world and letting his Jewish prophet know the interpretation of the dream so that both the Gentiles and the Jews would know God's plan for the world. So then, after he sees this image, and we come down to those feet, what's significant about those feet? Those feet are mixed. They're mixed with clay and with iron. And the feet will also be a divided kingdom. Now, you know, it's interesting because the feet have how many toes between them? 
one. Exactly. And we're going to learn later in some of Daniel's visions of beasties with horns (laughs) that that last great ferocious beast has 10 horns. So there is a connection here between the 10 toes and the 10 horns. And as we go through the book, we realize that those 10 horns and those 10 toes are going to be kings or kingdoms of sorts that are trying to unite. Can I just say again, because I can sense this internal reacting like, ah, toes and horns and kings and dates. And as a former Adventist, I can want to glaze over, but the book itself is going to interpret this along with verifiable history. This is not going to be interpreted by post-resurrection prophecy and visions and (laughs) dreams. So I I have to remind myself, take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The text is going to unfold the details. And we promise that we will read the words of the Bible and we will not try to interpret what the Bible does not tell us. With the exception of just saying, we see these divisions and like we've already talked about, history records when these divisions actually came about and who did the work. It's not Gnostic. No. <laughs> we can we can know. We can all go online and figure it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what happens then ultimately in this vision with this image standing on feet of mixed iron and clay? So then he tells him that he continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, the rest of that statue was crushed all at the same time. And it became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. They were wiped completely. And what's fascinating to me is that that entire statue was standing until the moment that rock hit the feet. Now you think about it, here we are living in the United States in 2022, and we're far, 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 far from Babylon, far from Medo-Persia, far from Greece in terms of time. Mm -hmm. And yet it says this entire statue is there until the rock hits it. That means that whatever was shaping the values, the power, the religion, The politics of those nations is still around. It's still around, whether it's spiritual powers or whatever is going on there. That is going to be in existence when Jesus returns. Now, I said Jesus. How do we know that that rock represents Jesus? Scripture. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I found a few verses, Acts 4, 11 to 12, Where Peter is preaching and he says, this Jesus, he's saying to the Jews, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We can see that the image of the stone cut out without hands has been used of Jesus all through, actually all through the Bible. When we look at it, for example, In Psalm 2, 7 to 9, we read this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, I always find this amazing, Nikki, because this is Psalms. This is (laughs) Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, there's the rock smashing those 
Gentile nations like a potter's vessel, mm-hmm. and there's clay in those feet. And Isaiah 28, 16 says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Daniel's interpretation here includes this stone cut out without hands becoming huge and filling the earth. It's a foundation. And Psalm 118, 21 to 24, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In this image, we see the fulfillment in a sort of imagery, a metaphor, if you will, of what the Bible has prophesied all through the Old Testament and what Peter says, this is the Lord. And then in Luke 20, 17 to 18, it says, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That is what the stone in this vision was doing. Mm -hmm. It crushed everyone in those Gentile nations, except we will learn those who allow the Lord Jesus to renew them and make them new and give them new life through trust in him. But he is going to crush those Gentile nations that have rejected him have been arrogant and proud and ruled with without compassion, without mercy, and without the fear of God, the stone is going to crush them. And I love what you said in preparation for this. The rock does not persuade the pagan powers to cooperate. It crushes them. Right. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no come along with me. I'm going to conquer you now. Let's work together and gain control of the world. Oh, no. When Jesus comes, that's it. As Lewis Johnson said this also, I I find it fascinating because, you know, many Christians see this in different ways, and we're not here to say there's anybody that has this completely right, because you know what? There's not every detail included here. But there are people who say that that mountain that grows out of that stone is the kingdom of God, which the church is going to establish on earth and grow into a thing that covers the earth and fills it and destroys all evil and wickedness. Almost like a political power. Yeah. But that's not what this says. The stone itself is not the church. And I think it's really important to stress that. The stone itself, the imagery in scripture is of the Lord Jesus. And when he comes and destroys those Gentile nations represented in that image, his kingdom will grow. But that's not the church bringing in the kingdom. That's Jesus bringing in the kingdom. And I think that's, a. it may sound like a detail, but it's a really significant detail that changes how we see everything. And as Lewis Johnson said this about that idea, he said, no human can inaugurate a kingdom that will endure because it cannot be accomplished because of the doctrine of total depravity. Now, if you don't like that, Johnson says, because of the biblical doctrine of total depravity, that's why. That's why this doctrine is so important. It really is the clue to the understanding of everything that transpires. It's the clue to understanding the first page of your newspapers every day. It is the clue to understanding human history. There have been so many people that have 
hoped to set up an empire that would control the world since Rome. Napoleon hoped to. Even religious empires. Even professing Christian empires. Right. But nobody can because man is depraved. There is no human who can set up a perfect, righteous, just kingdom that will destroy all evil and will last and fill the earth. And what Johnson says is so significant, the doctrine of human depravity is essential for understanding the future of the world. Nikki, that we didn't know as Adventists. That's why Ted Wilson scolded the Adventists for not bringing in the kingdom yet when they had their big anniversary. That's right. (laughs) The great disappointment was long gone and they're still here. Well, they're going to still be here until Jesus himself comes. Mm -hmm. And he's not waiting for us to finish the work. No. He's asking us to be faithful, to trust him, to do what he gives us to do. But you know, As Adventists, number one, we thought we were the true church, and we thought we had to finish the work of taking Adventism to the whole world before Jesus would come. Well, even as Christians, we see that's a fallacy because we don't do that. But as Adventists, that's really crazy because they don't even have the gospel. They have a false religion. So they're not going to help Jesus bring anything. Well, finally, after we have Daniel giving the definitions of these parts of the image and saying what's going to happen... And he talks about the stone striking that image and setting up a future kingdom that's going to envelop the whole world. We realize from this, essentially, everything that's going to happen on earth in a big picture form from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the time of Jesus' return. There's not going to be any other world empire than those that we see. Now, there are going to be some definitions of those toes along the way. Mm -hmm. There's going to be an antichrist along the way, but there's no other world empire. Just a quick response to what you were saying there in Adventism, we were going to bring in the kingdom, we were going to bring Christ back. So that means we believed that we were that stone? Well, I learned as an Adventist that the stone was Jesus. Oh, you did? Okay. I did. But that his kingdom, whatever that was from my Adventist perspective, was going to fill the earth, but I didn't understand it as clearly as the Bible actually portrays it. Well, the issue that I see with that kingdom filling the earth and being what destroys those other kingdoms is that that stone came and hit the toes before it grew and got big. That's right. And when it hit the toes, it immediately destroyed all of the other kingdoms. So in the growth of that mountain, you don't have the other kingdoms present. Being destroyed by the mountain at the time the mountain's growing. No, you're right. That's actually a really good point. So that all of the power and the spiritual power and the forces that were at work in the head, in the chest, in the thighs, in the legs are still present when the stone hits. And when the stone hits, they're gone. And then the kingdom grows. It doesn't grow first and destroy them. And I think that's a really important distinction. The way the picture is in the dream is that the stone destroys everything and crushes it and blows it out like chaff, and those powers are no more. So finally, after Daniel gives all of this definition, the king does homage to Daniel, and what else does he do? He gave orders to present Daniel an offering and fragrant incense, and then he promoted him. (laughs) But I have a question about this. I keep throwing questions at you. I'm sorry, 
But it says that he did homage to Daniel. And that Hebrew word is the same word used of the command for the people of Babylon to bow down and pay homage to the image. And we don't see record of Daniel refusing this from the king. No, I've thought about that too, Nikki. And I, I can't give a completely definitive answer except to say Daniel has made it really, really clear that he did not give this interpretation that it was God. And in his doing homage to Daniel, the king said, Your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. So even in this, he was basically acknowledging Daniel as a mouthpiece for the God who knew. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. The glory was going to him. And wow, what an admission that Daniel's God was the God of gods. And remember, he's Nebo, right? Right. (laughs) He's a God in his own mind. And the Lord of kings. Right. So King Nebuchadnezzar is confessing which just means agreeing with God, right. <laughs> that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he yeah. is orchestrating all these things. I imagine that was easy for him to do hearing he was the head of gold, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but it's an incredible admission from a pagan king. It is. And once again, God is sovereign and God reveals his will to whomever he will, even to a Nebuchadnezzar. And it was interesting to me that he kept Daniel close. Daniel was in his court, was in the king's court, and Daniel asked for permission to promote Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be governors over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself served the king directly in the king's court. So, if you are finding yourself challenged by the fact that God has revealed these kinds of details thousands of years ago to a pagan king and set his own prophet right in that place in pagan Babylon where he could interpret God's will, know this. If you have Adventism in your background, we were not taught a sovereign God. We were taught a God who is dealing with and, if you will, manipulating humans to do His will. No, we have a sovereign God who knows us, who knows the future, who is in charge of the future, who is the only one who can change times and epochs, and who is the God of kings. This God sees us today. This God knows us, and this God is asking us to trust Him like Daniel and his three friends trusted him. He's given us even more revelation of himself. He's given us his son in the person of Jesus, who took our sin to the cross, who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, the eternal, almighty, sovereign God, who came to earth in a mortal body, to take your sin, to break the curse of your sin, and to rise from death, and to give you eternal life the moment you believe, then I urge you to trust God and be reconciled to Him, and know the peace and security that comes from being made alive with the eternal resurrection life of Christ, and knowing that you're on the right side of history because you are a son of God. We would love to hear from you as you walk through this book of Daniel with us. If you have any questions for us or even comments, please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com and join us next week as we begin chapter three of Daniel. And we will see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. 
Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Thank you.